Do you believe that, church? I want to remind you of, as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 7, is that I think sometimes with, with songs like this, which teach a scriptural truth, we often think of kind of what I was talking about a moment ago as, as we prayed, that Christ will hold us fast when bad things happen to us, and that's true. That is absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably true. But we must also maintain that truth and that understanding that He will hold us fast even when we do bad things, when we're in a bad place, when we make mistakes, when we sin because of who He is and because of His covenant love and His covenant faithfulness, when we find ourselves going through the blessing that is Holy Spirit-wrought conviction for our mistakes or our wrong ways of thinking or just, just our, our stubbornness, He holds us just as fast in those times and in that mess as He does when the world is falling apart around us. He is as faithful when we are suffering from the sins of the evil one and the sins of a fallen world as he does when we are the cause of our suffering. We need to keep that in mind because this morning, as we go to Mark chapter 7, we're going to encounter some people who are doing some bad stuff, some people who have some wrong ways of thinking. And Lord willing, we will be convicted in some way, shape, or form. And instead of shoving away that conviction and, and not taking advantage of the Spirit's ministry to us this morning, embrace that, receive that, but do so with it fresh in our minds what we just said, that He will hold us fast. So go to Mark chapter 7, and we'll begin with a bad question, verses 1 through 5. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with defiled hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders that eat their bread with defiled hands? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promises of Scripture, promises encapsulated in what we just sang. You will hold us fast. But God, we are having to keep that in mind as we navigate the difficulties of life, different expectations, different shortcomings, and as we'll see here in the Word, just our confusion sometimes about what true obedience and true religion looks like. Speak to us mightily this morning in the name of your Son. Amen. So how many of you are up to date on the most current evangelical controversies? 
If he really wants to be depressed, then hop yourself onto Twitter, or X as they call it these days, and see what the theologians are arguing about. It's not how to best affect evangelism among the unreached peoples. It's not how to best serve the impoverished and the sick. Unfortunately, as is often the case and has been really for the last maybe 2,000 years, because we see some silly things happening with the apostles even right after the church was formed, it's about the minutiae. It's the straining of gnats. It's the wrangling of words. Things don't change. And uh, at the risk of, of truly looking at something very, very briefly, I'll give you a little bit of a snapshot of one of the major debates that's happening and that has been going on. It has to do with what is the test of orthodoxy? And we would say, well, we know the test of orthodoxy. It's finding your faithfulness and, 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 and how closely you, you follow Scripture. And we'd say, absolutely. And they would say, absolutely as well. But I'm not sure if you know this or not, but over the last 2,000 years, there's been lots of church movements, and most of these church movements have come up with documents. And these documents are very helpful in encapsulating and summarize what these various movements, denominations, and sects believe. And it, what has happened, though, instead of these being helpful documents, these documents have become the litmus test for perfect orthodoxy. And so we, we appeal to so many of these things. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, put together in the middle of the 17th century, was a formative and foundational document that is still held to by conservative Presbyterians today that outline how they go by their faith. And particular Baptists, a, a group that we would very much identify closely with, in an attempt to say, we believe almost everything you do, but with a few differences about baptism and about church government and about relations with the state, we're going to adopt the vast majority of the language of your confession. And in 1689, they put out one that was very similar. And these documents for the last 350 years in the majority of the English-speaking world have been essentially the major confessions of the faith. And people have looked to them to kind of give a guide, but not to exist on their own, but to simply encapsulate and summarize what is said in God's word. But of course, people like to wrangle about words. And what we've seen over the last, really, decades, and certainly the last few centuries, but even in the last few years, is people saying, well, you have to look at it this way. You have to interpret it this way. And if you really want just a snapshot of how deep into the weeds it goes, it's, this is, you're going to get your money's worth this morning once you hear this. You have to be looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith with an Aristotelian metaphysic in the background as articulated by Thomas Aquinas, or you are not truly orthodox. People in the pew, has this ever come up in your heart, mind, or personal daily devotions? And they all say, for those listening, they all shook their head and or looked confused. And that's good because it's confusing and it's silly and it's nonsensical. Now, does this mean that there is not some sort of downstream application or some sort of implication to these studies and these conversations? No. The seminaries must stay in business, so they have to have these conversations. However... 
What this illustrates is that something that started somewhere great, how do we encapsulate, how do we summarize, and then how do we apply God's word turned into a document, and that document was helpful, but then that document took on a life of its own for some, and it became kind of like the the blob, kind of expanding and consuming, and it became actually a thing to be feared rather than to be appreciated. Hopefully that makes sense, that something that started off as, as trying to faithfully interpret God's word turned into having a little bit of a life of its own, and it became the standard rather than the word of God. Now, I have the utmost respect for both the confessions that I, that I mentioned earlier, and, and we've used them uh, significantly as we put together our statement of faith, and they, I still return to them over and over again to understand the historical understanding and perspective on so many of these doctrines. But to say that that, that, that statement of faith or that confession is now the ultimate standard over Scripture is problematic, and to say that there's only one way of reading it, that is problematic. And it's so very disturbing in light of the text that we just read in which the Pharisees, no friend to Jesus, no friend to the apostles, no friend to the early church, were doing the precise thing that so many are doing today, which is elevating a document, a tradition, and a traditional way of understanding a particular document over Scripture itself. We see that in these first five verses that we just read when the Pharisees asked this bad question. And the bad question is, they asked Jesus why his disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate bread. Now, is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Let's, the Pharisees aren't crazy, right? It's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat, especially in cold and flu season, by all means. Wash your hands before you eat. That's a completely, I like how a few years ago, that was, you know, if you want to avoid COVID-19, wash your hands. How about just wash your hands? If you want to avoid being gross, wash your hands, all right? So there's nothing wrong with washing your hands before you eat, especially putting something in your mouth, right? However, is that what their concern is? Is their concern that they are not following good cleanliness protocol. Now, their concern is, as you see articulated by Mark in a bit of a parenthetical aside in verses 3 and 4, it says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. So this has nothing to do, well, I'm going to say it has nothing to do, has very little to do with hygiene. It has more to do with following rules. Rules that although they had a basis in Scripture, and certainly if you go back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you will see particular cleanliness regulations and laws. What is being specifically referenced here, and you see it in verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, do not eat unless they wash themselves, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. What's being referenced here is actually traditions some that are contained in documents called the Mishnah, others that are simply that we don't even have anymore because they were kind of that arbitrary, that were added onto in order to create, in one sense, a more set-apart culture, but in another sense, in order to kind of go over 
and above these cleanliness requirements. This was often the issue with the Pharisees, is that they, they were all about putting up fences far away from the danger. So we have a dog, and this dog is a dog that we like enough that we don't want him playing in the street, and so we have an electric collar for him. And so we like him enough to not play in the street, but we don't like him so much that we don't mind if he gets zapped now and again. And so when we had to create the barrier for where the zapping happens, we didn't put the barrier right on the, the, the well, it's, it's in Raymond, so it's about 10 feet of gravel between the road and our yard, but we moved it about 15 to 20 feet before that. Why is that? We don't want him running right onto the road. We want him to have that negative stimuli. We want him to understand that as he gets closer to the road, this is where danger is coming. Now, is 20 feet away from the road dangerous? No, it's not. 20 feet of road is not dangerous. Depending on where some of you live and how some people drive, it might be dangerous. But where we live, it's not dangerous. But we are doing this for the protection of the dog, right? Now, if we were to say to our children, we want you to stay 20 feet from the road because it's dangerous 20 feet from the road, that'd be disingenuous. If we were to say, play in the backyard because it's dangerous 20 feet from the road, that would also be disingenuous. And that's ultimately what the Pharisees were doing. The road was dangerous, but they were saying, let's set up a barrier kind of 10 feet, 20 feet, 50 feet away from the road, lest you get anywhere close to that road. And so you had this long list of what must be washed, what must be cleaned, in which order, and if you mess things up, you had to start from the beginning all over again. This was the bad question. And the question was bad, not because they were taking the system and they were imposing it upon Scripture. And what you see, um, and as, as we'll get to here in a moment, and what you, you definitely get an, an understanding of elsewhere in the Gospels, is that the Pharisees regarded this as equal to Scripture. It would be one thing if they said, you know what, our preference is that you wear a tie to worship. Our, our, our preference is that you, know, you wear the ankle-length skirt when you go, you go to worship. That's our preference. But there's a difference between that and saying, oh, the Bible says you have to do it. Some of you may have come from a tradition where the implication is, oh, if it's not a tie and not an ankle-length skirt, then you're violating Scripture. Well, there's a difference between a preference, a system, a, a, a standard, and the biblical system, the biblical standard, not the biblical preference, but the biblical mandate. The Pharisees, they, 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 they convoluted the whole situation by overlapping those two things, and it made it very difficult for the person who was attempting to be faithful, attempting to listen, attempting to worship rightly, to truly divide what the Bible said and what tradition said, because the Pharisees held them to the standard that came from tradition, that came from uh, man. And so this is, this is why the, there was impure motives behind this question. There's also impure motives behind this question because they were trying to trap Jesus. They weren't saying, Jesus, we want to help you. We want your ministry to really thrive. We want your apostles to be well-respected. So just, just wash their hands. No, what they were trying to do here is discredit Jesus, trap Jesus, get Jesus to, know, to say what they knew he would say in this situation, which was, we don't want to do that. We don't have to do that because the Bible doesn't say it. So they, were, they had impure motives, and it was a bad question, soup to nuts, for these two reasons. 
It was because they were trying to trap him, and it's because they were using a system that was beyond Scripture. But continuing on, we see Jesus' good answer to this question. And his good answer is a bit of a non-answer. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they teach, excuse me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So this is, the, this is Jesus' perfect answer. Why don't your disciples wash their hands, they ask. Jesus says, because you're not the boss of them. That is one of the best answers anyone can ever give anybody. It's a bit snarky and a bit smarmy, but you're not the boss of me is an important principle to remember when someone's not the boss of you. And here, Jesus effectively says, Pharisees, you are imposing something upon not just my disciples, but your disciples, God's disciples, the children of Israel, that he doesn't even want of them. You know, when Jesus talks about his burden being light, that's in distinction to, yes, the burden of the world, but also this religious burden that is heavy, that runs completely contrary to the gracious, light liberty that comes from true obedience. So this kind of thing is what makes Jesus angry. This is the kind of thing that makes Jesus upset because it is taking something that should be good and making it so that it is difficult and so that it is hard and it becomes a distraction and an impediment to faithfulness. So does Jesus actually answer them? And he does answer them. Why don't you do it? And instead of saying, why don't we do it? Because we don't like doing it. He says, we don't do it because we don't have to do it. We don't do it because you're doing it for a reason that's completely wrong. You're doing it for a reason that is actually not just off, but actually disobedient. Notice that he says in verse 6, this prophecy from Isaiah, strong words. First of all, he calls them hypocrites. He doesn't... He, he, he says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Isaiah, back in the original context of this, this, this prophecy, is talking about the very people who led to the destruction of Israel. Because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness, these are the people that led to the downfall of Israel. And now he's saying it's applying it to the Pharisees. And this would be insult to injury because the Pharisees actually grew out of, we've mentioned this before, a sect that was the faithful, the ones that were preserving the law in the time between the, <clears throat> the end of the prophetic period and the New Testament. But the power went to their head. The absolute power of the religious authority that they had corrupted them absolutely. And they got themselves into a bad situation where they were, as Jesus said, elevating the, the tradition of men over the commandment of God. But they honored with their lips. We talk about this earlier in the catechism. Sometimes there can be prayers that are just so eloquent and beautiful. And then you realize the focus on getting the old English right actually obscured what in the world was being said. Well, that's what we have here. They were saying all sorts of amazing things. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about how they pray in the, in the streets to be seen by men. And that's where they'll get their reward. God's economy, 
The economy of the kingdom is one that it takes its stock and takes its value in the heart. Whereas man is so quick to look at the outside, God always looks at the heart. Now, something I want to say here is a bit of an aside, and we'll get to here momentarily. Does that mean the outside doesn't matter? Does that mean the outside has, has no, doesn't matter? No. As we'll see here in a minute, the outside is simply an outpouring of what's on the inside. But that means that the, if the outside is bad, there's a good chance the inside is bad. But just because the outside looks good doesn't mean that the inside is good. And that's what God looks at. So these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. What a strong word against any religious system that elevates the preferences, that elevates the, the, the secondary and tertiary issues, that elevates a pastor's or an elder's or a denomination's preferences over and above the clear teaching of Scripture. And whether you have come from a very, very conservative background, a very, very liturgical background, a very, very liberal background, each one of these movements raises up their perspective in a way that blinds people to Scripture, that covers Scripture, that makes it so frequently. One of the things I hear so frequently, people say, I didn't even know the Bible said that because I was only taught this other thing over here. Does that mean that other things over here are bad? No. It just means that we need to have the right priority. As I said earlier, the creeds and confessions are, are essential with a lowercase e. But the word of God is essential, all caps, all the time. A, a church's a, a rulings on, 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 on matters of discipline and elders' preferences and how a worship service is conducted are essential with a lowercase e but it is the word of God that ought to influence those things and ought to be the standard by which those things are always measured. Well, continuing on, look at verse 9. And he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Jesus really being... Some different translations um, uh, render this differently that almost uh, really emphasize his, his sarcasm. He's saying, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Like, this is something you're skilled at. Congratulations. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to a father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is korban, which this, we'll talk about that in a minute, that is to say, given to God, you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God, by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So Jesus is he's Jesus, so he's, he's wise, 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 right? And he knows how to really get at someone. So who does he appeal to here? He appeals to God, but notice who he appeals to in word. He appeals to Moses. For the ones who are just all about the law, who is the one that they are following ultimately? They're following Moses. So he goes right to the prophet's mouth with this commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. He who speaks evil is father and mother is to be put to death. They would all agree to that. 
But then he brings up this Corbin principle in verse 11. So let's take what Scripture says, and then we'll, we'll, go from, we'll go from there. It says, if a man says to his father or mother, Wherever, whatever you might benefit from me is Corbin, then you no, no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother. The Corbin principle was one of these things that you would have found in their tradition. We still have extant or still existing manuscripts and documents that talk about how this was employed. It was effectively a trust that you could say, I am giving my money to the church, to the synagogue, to, to, to the temple, and it, it belongs to them, but if I need some, I'm, I can pull from it. So if I have a, if I have a, you know, a, a, a million dollars, I'm going to say, I'm going to take all of, my, all of my wealth, my million dollars, and I'm going to leave that to the temple. But I still hold custody of it, so if I need it, then I can pull from it, like for my rainy day fund. But this was done in a way to basically shell or hide money so that it couldn't be taken by dependents. And what Jesus is getting at right here was that this meant that people weren't taking care of their aging parents because that money that should have been pulled from to take care of their aging parents was being set aside for the temple, but they were still using it for their own purposes. Does that make sense? This, 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 essentially, they, were, they had this tradition set up which had this, this image of godliness because you were giving money to the temple. It's, it's all for the temple. But if I need you know, a new chariot or I need a new horse or we want to go vacation to the Sea of Galilee, then of course I'm going to take a little bit of money out of it. But when it comes to other stuff, like my aging parents, who, you know, shouldn't there be some sort of social safety net? Didn't they pay into Social Security? Can't the government take care of them? They wouldn't take care of them. The children wouldn't take care of them. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you are blatantly disregarding the fifth commandment of honoring their father and, and your, your mother by this, this tradition that you set up. And so effectively what happens is that these conservatives have set up this super tight, conservative, hyper-conservative system that has this loophole. And once this loophole is open, it opens them up to this great liberalism of being able to do whatever they want to do once they kind of shimmy through this tiny little loophole in their conservative system. So this is, this is remarkable, and this is something that's worth noting. The, the, we often think of conservative and liberal both in a political sense, but also in a religious sense as being a spectrum. And in one sense it is, but I think if we pay attention well enough, it's not so much a spectrum as it is a, 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 a loop, because the incredibly conservative, they have something like this, where they, they have a tiny loophole, and then once that loophole is breached, then that money could be used however they wanted to use it, except for in a way that they could help their, their, their aging parents. On the other side, and this is something that is very clear, uh, liberalism is, is all about being very, very, very accepting and acknowledging and being accepting of the 14 or 15 or 25 uh, different um, standards that must be accepted in the culture. But if there's 15 that must be accepted and you are only liberal to the point of, of accepting 14 of them, then now you are not included. You have violated that doctrine. And so it's actually a picture of conservatism to say, you need to accept all 15 of these four, uh, uh, 15 liberal tenants, and if you only accept 14, then you're not liberal enough, and you're out of the club. 
This is how you actually see these two, uh, uh, really, they're thinking, epistemological, but it comes to political and it also comes to religious matters. These two polar ends actually kind of meet in the middle because what they both illustrate is that people want to believe what they want to believe. They want to live how they want to live and they're okay with justifying it regardless of their perspective. And so you see that with this Corbin principle, that the Pharisees, and what we even think for them is, of them today, and what they certainly thought of them at that day was, they hold the standard of the law up so high. But in doing so, they not only violated the, the spirit of the law, but they were even violating the letter of the law by following what had been written by men rather than what had been written by God. So this is, we see a bad question come up. We see a good answer by Jesus. And then he continues to illustrate this with a helpful parable. We see it in verse 14. And after he called the crowd, he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when they had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples were asking him about the parable. And he said to them, are you lacking understanding in this way as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and goes to the sewer? Thus he declares all food clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So we live in the future. I don't know if you know that or not. But this is the future. I mean, how many sci-fi books that were written in, in the 20th century said, in the year 2020, I mean, they had no clue what 2020 was going to be like, right? But, you know, we are, we are flying cars and we are, you know, uh, teleportation and this is, this is where we live. If you watch any sci-fi movies, we are in the future. Hope it's all that you thought it was going to be cracked up to be, right? The one thing that hasn't happened yet, aside from the flying cars and the teleportation, the one thing that hasn't happened yet is this thing I'm just completely fascinated about. And it is from that just precious, 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 it is precious, precious and prescient cartoon, The Jetsons. Along with the robot butler, which we basically have on our cell phone, they also had the machine that would generate this little capsule for food. And it was, you know, turkey dinner, hit it with water, it expands in turkey dinner, right? The, you, you, it was meatloaf, and you, you know, it drops down. Rosie brings it over to George, puts it in front of him, drops it with water, boom, meatloaf. I mean, that hasn't happened yet. I mean, I, I eat protein bars, and they're almost like that, but it's not quite that yet. Regardless of what you were to cram in that capsule, regardless of what you were to put into a pill or you were to put into a protein bar or you put into some Jetsons-level, technologically advanced food pill... Could you consume something and it make your heart change? I'm not talking cholesterol, mind you, because certainly that's the case. But, I, but could you consume something and it engender and grow in your heart thievery, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, wickedness, 
sexual immoralities, thefts. Regardless of what you can pack in, vitamins, minerals, nutrients, all of the good green things that you should be eating more of, no matter what you put into that, you could even take a tiny little piece of paper and write words on it, and like somebody who is much too quickly eating a fortune cookie, ingest that, and nothing in your stomach is going to make a sin manifest. Are we clear on that? I'm not a biologist, of course, so only take what I say with a grain of salt. But nothing that we eat is going to produce a sin. It's not how the stomach works. Why am I making such a, 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 a statement about this? It's because this is the problem for the Pharisees. This was the problem for so many in Jesus' day. They thought if something didn't have the right process procedure that was applied to it, that this was actually going to make them unclean. That if every kosher law wasn't followed perfectly, that this is what was going to be a problem. Now, we have to keep in mind, a faithful Jew at the time of Jesus, should he have eaten kosher, yes or no? The answer is yes, absolutely. But here's the thing, and this is what the Pharisees were missing. They were putting too much credence and too much power and too much authority on the process by which food was made kosher, and the end result of that food without understanding, without grasping the whole purpose for the kosher diet, the whole purpose for going through these things. It was to be a separate people. It was to be, as it said, at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, a kingdom of priests, to live in a separate way, a holy way, a righteous way. It was never the food. It was the obedience to the God that said, eat the food. That was always the purpose. But by honoring them with their lips, they ate thinking that was going to be a good, good, good enough. But their heart was far away from him. And consequently, they completely lost sight of the point of the kosher diet and the, po the point of washing their hands and the point of using certain cups and plates and dishes. This was the problem. And so consequently, they had zero tolerance for the Gentiles. Consequently, they had zero desire to evangelize the surrounding nations. Because what, what, what had, they had defaulted upon since the moment that they stepped into the promised land, really, was keeping themselves separate in heart from the Gentiles and they only worried about keeping themselves separate and by the externals from the Gentiles. And so, you see that happening as early as the conquest, where they failed as they, after, after they entered the land. You saw that in the compromise of the time of the judges. You saw that in the spiritual harlotry that began when the kingdom was, was divided after, after uh, Solomon's reign. And it continued to this day. And the Pharisees were unfortunately, the prototypical offenders for this problem. What would be some modern-day applications? Well, I mentioned this earlier. It's dress. It's what you eat. It's what you drink. It's what you consume from an entertainment standpoint. We, uh, Amanda and I went to Bible College in South Carolina. We had a wonderful experience, and I know a number of other folks went to 
different religious institutions, both for secondary and higher education. And one of the, the kind of um, themes that you will find across these schools is they will have certain standards of behavior to which you sign up saying, I will adhere to these standards. Ours are actually called standards. Well, one of these standards is no R-rated movies. No R-rated movies. If it's, if it's filthy talk or if it's violence or if it's, if it's uh, inappropriate you know, things to see, it doesn't matter. No R-rated movies. Well, then the Passion of the Christ came out. And the school had to really backpedal. Say, well, 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 I mean, if it's about Jesus. And people said, well, no. You said it doesn't matter what the content of the movie is. It's that letter R that's the problem. And, of course, it led to a lot of, you know, college student mischief and probably not really most respectful attitudes. But what that illustrates is, is it that letter? Is it that letter? Is that letter harmful? Well, it very well may, may symbolize something harmful. Or, you know, once again, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. Does the alcohol content of something make it good or bad? Or is it what something somebody does with that alcoholic beverage that makes it good or bad? Or a cupcake downstairs. Is there anything wrong with one cupcake? Not necessarily. How about a dozen cupcakes? That's where things start to get a little bit scary. And also a little bit convicting because, you know, it's easy to point your finger at the movie and on the alcohol, but the cupcakes, you know, stay away from it. Or the matter of dress, these expectations that we have for how we should look or how we shouldn't look in different situations for different genders and things like that. Does that mean that everything is always edifying? Does that mean everything is always good? And in fact, that's the thing Paul says. It's lawful, but it might not necessarily be profitable. The modern-day application of this is not necessarily the thing that is consumed, the thing that is seen. It's what comes out of the heart. It is not for everyone to go evangelize in every place. There are some people that would be very, very compromised in their convictions to go into a seedy part of town to share a gospel with people who are in a very, very difficult situation. They're just not there in their spiritual maturity or their background, either it be sins that they have committed or sins that they've been exposed to, would find it very, very difficult to be around addicts and users and prostitutes. And so it's not for them to do that. But does that mean that the person that is able to do that and is accountable to when they do that and, and is doing it wisely is sinning? Absolutely not. Christ himself is the perfect model of this. But, of course, we have to remember that Christ was perfect, and we can't say Jesus did it, therefore I have license to do it as well. There's so much more we could talk about, and I mean, you're going to get your money's worth this week at small group if you go down these rabbit trails, and Joe and John will be very, very well prepared for these things. You have my guarantee. But what does this mean? It means that it is what arises from within us that causes problems. One man may drink and do so no, no problem. One man may eat and do so without a problem. And for another man, the eating or the drinking or the consuming something with his eyes or, 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 or with his ears is problematic. It's the heart. So what's the overall message? How do these two things flow together, this question and answer of Jesus and this parable of Jesus? 
It illustrates the heart is what God cares about. He, he desires obedience over fastidiousness. So that is to say, he desires an obedient heart more than he desires making sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted. Because what often happens, if we're focusing on making sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted and everything is formatted perfectly, we're actually missing out on opportunities to be obedient in ways that are clearly in front of us, but we're trying to make sure everything is nailed down perfectly. It's not that fastidiousness or, or being detail-oriented doesn't matter. It's that he desires a heart posture and a heart attitude that is about being obedient. It's, it, it, it's getting out and doing something and, and, and doing so in a way that is, is effective and is relying on the Spirit and not saying one more minute of preparation, one more minute of preparation, one more minute in front of the mirror, one more minute making sure that everything is just so. It's getting out there and actually doing it. It also is intention over action. This doesn't mean that action doesn't matter. It means that intention is oftentimes... The, 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 the rubric by which we are graded. What is your heart? What is your desire? What are you trying to accomplish? The action may be remarkable. The Pharisees were great at remarkable actions. Jesus criticizes, he criticizes them, but he does so by showing how perfect they were. But their perfection on their outside was simply the whitewashed tombs, the, 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 the sepulchers of dead men's bones intention over action. And it's the inside over the outside. It's the inside over the outside. Every one of us have heard some sort of story about the person who comes crawling into church dirty and stinking, but has a soft heart that God uses that message to transform them that morning. And then everyone around who is holding their nose then feels terrible. And it's a wonderful parable about what God is looking for. And although that's true, each and every one of us has the, the, the potential to be that stinking person on a Sunday or on a Monday or any other day where our outsides are rotten because our insides are rotten. And we need to remind, be reminded that God in his spirit through his word and the ministry of his church can change things for us. So fastidiousness, the, the actions and the outside, all of these things do matter, church but they matter as much as they are a reflection of our obedience, of our intention, of our inside. So it's not that being particular doesn't matter. Being particular does matter. Read a Puritan. Read their 45 applications that they have over half of a verse. It, it does matter, and there's value there. But that's only as a reflection of having a heart of being obedient, not of being particular. Our action matters, but our action matter is in as much as it is following through of our intention. What do we desire to do? Do we doing it for the right reasons? And our outside matters in as much as it is a picture of what's on the inside. Our outside matters. What we dress, what we eat, what we drink, what we watch, what we hear, all of these things matter as it is a result of what's on the inside. I'll close with a text from the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, 
there's a wonderful text about the liberty that we experience in Christ. In Galatians 2.19, it says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Church, we have not been called to live outside of the flesh. We have not been called to live outside of the world. This is where we've been called to live. We eat the same food from the same grocery store, regardless of our spiritual standing. We, we, when we go look at art, we look at good art. When we listen to music, we look at good music. When we experience decent semina, we experience decent semina. All of these things we take in in the same way as everyone else does, but we do so once it penetrates the physical, once it goes through the eyes and the ears and the mouth, it touches a life that is transformed and is lived by Christ. That is where it changes. That is where the filter lives. That is where it either has value and it is, is retained or it is no value and it is dispensed of. We live to God. We are crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. We keep this in mind this morning as we take the supper. We ought to be thoughtful and ought to be considerate of the things that we have done that we have put too much emphasis in and those things that we have not put enough emphasis in. This is an external in one sense because it is a tangible cup and it is a tangible piece of bread. It's, it's, it's external in that sense. But it's internal in that the way in which we take this, and it has very little to do with our, our mouth, we take this in a way that we understand that the higher reality and the greater truth to which this points is a spiritual reality. And that for all of the things that we worry about, for all of the things that we give an undue amount of attention, taking the supper with a right heart, with a right mind, and with right hands supersedes so many of those things. Because for all of the things that are inferences, for all the things that we think might be good, for all the things that we, 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 we anticipate and plan to be beneficial, this is one thing in the world that Christ has promised will benefit us if we take with a humble and contrite heart and spirit. And so as you come up and receive this, as John leads us in this song, consider that. Consider where this ranks in our priorities. Are we, have we given other things undue attention? Have we not given the supper and given those things that Christ has commanded us, these means of grace, the attention that they deserve? Consider these things and be best by them this morning.